Missing Australia, the official podcast of the Australian Police Journal. Too often true crime books glorify scumbags. The, the stories about the gangsters and the criminals and the murderers and all that, that just, they're glorifying the wrong people. And so, you know, I wanted to write a book that kind of told about these amazing people on the other side. Hello, I'm Jason Burns and welcome to Policing Australia. Those comments were from Nathan Lynch, a financial crime intelligence expert, trainer, speaker, and author of a new book titled The Lucky Laundry, How the Aussie Economy Got Hooked on the World's Dirtiest Cash. Public awareness of money laundering as a crime type has increased in recent decades. Laundering, the way in which criminals are able to convert their illegal gains to legitimate funds, can sometimes involve very complex schemes. On other occasions, it can be simple, if risky, transactions with banks and other financial institutions. One method, which is called cuckoo smurfing, is explained in the June 2022 issue of the Australian Police Journal. While we might like to think we in Australia are somewhat immune to the impact of money laundering, the truth is sadly very different. Billions of dollars flow out of the country each year, untraced, or are invested in otherwise legitimate enterprises. Money laundering directly impacts everything from lost tax revenues to the increasing prices of houses and the cost of living. The book The Lucky Laundry provides great insight to the scope of the problem. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Money laundering. It's a term most people have heard, but many probably don't really understand exactly what it is. What's money laundering to you? Money laundering to me is effectively the alchemy of taking any illicitly derived money, and that could range from something as simple as tax evasion to massive organised crime, transnational crime, and transmuting that so that A, there's a lower risk of detection, B, there's a lower risk of seizure, and C, so that those funds can be reinvested in the criminal economy and in growing wealth. So it's this really nefarious, toxic medium But unfortunately, one of the impacts of criminalising money laundering has been the creation of the professional class of money launderers. And so that's where money laundering increasingly is a profession and a criminal enterprise in its own right, entirely separate from the predicate crimes. Money laundering has been around for a while. Why do you think it's become more prominent in the last few decades? Well, certainly through the criminalisation of the movement and concealment of money. I mean, in the past, you know, one of the analogies that I like to draw for the layperson is that if you had a bank robbery and someone was sitting outside driving the getaway car, there'd be no question that that person was an accessory to the crime, to the offence of bank robbery. But if someone sits there in a pinstripe suit in an office and then turns a blind eye to the source of those funds, knowing full well that it's shady, suspicious, and then moves that money, we treat that, or we certainly used to treat that very differently, but increasingly now there's an awareness that that is is one of the arms of the criminal trade, the movement, concealment, and transmutation of dirty money into clean money is, to my mind, just as critical to criminal acts as, say, someone who drives the getaway car. So that's sort of been one of the big shifts is as we've criminalised it, as law enforcement agencies increasingly go the path of disruption, we are seeing 
this huge focus on money laundering, but also on the other hand, we're seeing a massive, massive uplift in sophistication on the side of the bad actors. Can you give a quick outline of the frameworks of how governments throughout the world are trying to tackle the problem? Sure. So all of this is coordinated internationally through the Financial Action Task Force, which is a organisation, it's really a standard setter. It doesn't have any regulatory or enforcement powers. It just sets the international framework and it can apply persuasive measures against countries that are falling down. So that's the process known as grey listing or blacklisting. Grey listing in the case of countries like, for instance, Pakistan, who determine that they need to improve their standards but aren't intentionally bad actors, and then blacklisting in the case of your North Korea, Iran, and entities like that that are actually nefarious actors in the global economy. So you have this framework that's derived and delivered internationally, and that's critical because Clearly, if you have any weak points, it's like the proverbial crack in the damn wall. Any weak point, that dirty money is just going to find that path of least resistance and flow through. So it's really crucial that all countries move in lockstep and it's an international partnership. And I guess that's why it's so important that jurisdictions like Australia are not only keeping up, but really at the cutting edge of what's required internationally because We have such an outsized influence in our region and internationally that we we have that role where Australia is seen as a really, it's it's perceived as a clean jurisdiction. It's a strong rule of law country. It's, It's relatively low corruption, all of these wonderful things. And other countries in the region look up to Australia for guidance and support and capacity building and things like that. And that's why it's such a total and utter tragedy in my eyes, Jason, that Australia has woefully fallen behind in terms of its anti-money laundering regime. We've got that first tranche that applies to the financial services industry, to you know insurers, the whole gamut. It applies to bullion dealers and casinos, but we've really missed the game in terms of extending that as we're required to do. As a member of the Financial Action Task Force, we are required to extend that to gatekeeper professions, the lawyers, the real estate agents, the accountants, the high-value goods dealers, the car yards, all of these sectors. And yet we've dithered on that and found excuses and delayed and kicked the can down the road for 16 years now. So that is a, that is a national tragedy in my eyes. In the Australian context, which agencies have responsibilities for countering money laundering crimes? Yeah, that's a good one to cover off because there's a lot of misconceptions in the public mind that AUSTRAC, the Australian Anti-Money Laundering Financial Intelligence Unit and Regulator, is the body that oversees the crime and offence of money laundering. And clearly it's not the case. So AUSTRAC is the intelligence arm that collects all of the intelligence and then disseminates it to its partner agencies. And that is, that's a whole host of state and federal agencies. So that can range from state-based law enforcement through to the federal level with tax authorities, the NDIS, all of these agencies that might have an interest in consuming their financial intelligence. So you've got these two fairly different areas. You've got Austrac, which is in charge of gathering intelligence and bringing the regulated parts of the private sector up to a standard 
where they can detect and report suspicious activity. And then it passes that through to other agencies which are in charge of the actual investigation and enforcement and in some cases prosecution. So you've still got money laundering as a criminal offence at the state and federal level. But then Austrac's role when it does enforcement, it's only in relation to non-compliance among reporting entities. And I've, I've heard criticism in the public of saying, oh, Austrac's a toothless tiger, it never catches the money launderers. No, no, that's not its job. It's, it's a massively influential and powerful enforcement body that has completely changed the corporate culture in Australia by going after some of the biggest targets. And, you know, in the last two cases against Westpac and CBA, the two most powerful financial institutions in Australia, if not the two most powerful corporations, collectively paid $2 billion in penalties. So you've got Austrac there critically sitting in the middle, but unfortunately doesn't quite have the suite of powers that it needs yet. But also it's continually engaged in a dance and a partnership with other agencies which are in charge of doing the actual legwork when it comes to enforcement of of the law and the criminal code let's talk about some of the dramatic case studies you've included in the book you mentioned the commonwealth bank and westpac touching on combank first what were the money laundering matters they failed to show due diligence in, in in monitoring and reporting that is pretty much it so what they were what what was effectively happening was they had a weak set of controls they had an ambivalence to their obligations And you can kind of understand why that ambivalence and disregard built up. And I explore that in the book because I think it's really important to understand where that kind of hubris and disregard comes from. How do you take one of the proudest brands in Australia that's been known for 100 years to be one of the most trusted brands brands in the company, the place where you leave your life savings. They had the ability to go into schools and hand out money boxes. You know, that was the extent to which they were fused with the public sector and the establishment. And they were at one point the reserve bank. So you've got this critical institution and yet what had happened was they'd the main thing that they were caught out for that brought it to a head was that They had this network that they'd rolled out of intelligent deposit machines, which were sort of like ATMs that could take money. They would take up to $600,000 in one sitting (laughs) and they would count the money. They would pull out any forgeries and they'd pretty much do everything except swab them for cocaine residue. And so what you had was organized crime gangs had worked out that there was this sequence of failures in the organization. So you could open an account online and deposit money straight into that. That wasn't meant to happen. That was a breakdown in controls. So the th- then the transaction monitoring had slipped away and no one was aware of it. So no transaction monitoring and no reporting was happening on these high-risk accounts and these intelligent deposit machines. So the net result was that international organised crime groups, when they'd got drugs or some other criminal proceed in Australia and they needed to get it out. They simply gave it to these money laundering syndicates who would send mules down, who would sit at bank branches on the street, sometimes on a milk crate, that's how egregious it was, pull up their work stool and shovel cash from backpacks 
into these machines. It was instantly cleared and $22 later, that money was in Hong Kong, never to be seen again. And $8.9 billion moved through that channel. And we will never know because the records were never kept on how much of that was the proceeds of crime. But we know it was significant, huge. So effectively, you had a bank there that had been really naive to the risks. It had been so blinded by the profit motive, which was effectively to reduce staff costs by driving people to these automated channels. They didn't put controls in place. And the most egregious part of this, which is what led to the enforcement, is that when they were alerted to it by the AFP, the state police, Austrac, all of these other agencies, they didn't treat fixing it and repairing it and preventing it as a priority. And that was what led to the the chief executive leaving, the $700 million penalty, and years and years of remediation work, which kind of distracted them from what they should have been doing, which is running a fantastic bank. Banks have to report to authorities every transaction over a set amount of dollars, don't they? That's part of their due diligence requirements? They do, yeah. That's, so that's the original, the original anti... You know, if you look at the evolution of the whole regime, it started out with just transaction reporting and it was under the Financial Transaction Reporting Act, the FTR Act. And that was kind of targeted at detecting drug crime. Anyone that moves $10,000... Bearing in mind that this was introduced, I think, in Australia in 91. So 30 years ago, $10,000 was a lot of money. And now it's not. So due to the wonder of inflation, you might spend 10 grand on a trip to Bali now. So what you had back then was flagging large cash transactions so that they could be looked at. But the landscape has changed so much since then. Now 10 grand moves all the time. But also now you've got just this speed and volume of transactions and so the banking sector and all of the other reporting entities now they pretty much have to rely on technology to be able to comply with that and so it's basic stuff to report ten thousand dollar transactions but to be honest look that's low level intelligence these days it's it's not really that useful what's really important are the suspicious matter reports so they're the ones where you've got human judgment, where someone in the organization, it could be a human or it could even be technology, has formed a suspicion or seen something that should be deemed suspicious. And they've then got to fill out a fairly comprehensive suspicious matter report and file that with Austrac. That's the gold from a criminal intelligence point of view. And that's really what, you know, although look, when it comes to litigation and enforcement, as you know, Jason, Agencies have to be pragmatic and use the tools that Parliament has given them. And so Commonwealth Bank and Westpac both got caught out for a vast number of reporting failures. And the vast majority of those were the transaction reports that they didn't file. And each time they fail to do that, they're up for a $21 million penalty. So the sums get enormous. But in reality, what drove the enforcement actions was this failure to deliver suspicious matter reports. They are the lifeblood of the anti-money laundering financial intelligence game. You captioned your book the behind-the-scenes decision-making processes by Oztrack to take action against the banks. ComBank in particular was unimpressed with what occurred and they played it a bit tough for a while. It was fairly groundbreaking action by Oztrack, wasn't it? Incredibly brave. And this is where the political aspect comes in, where you had financial regulators that were completely captured. 
And we've seen that again now, you know, with the crackdown in the casino sector, which again is being driven by money laundering penalties and, and offences. And you saw this incredible, I guess, just lack of concern from the reporting entities around their money laundering obligations because they had the likes of APRA and ASIC wrapped around their little finger. I mean, if you look at Westpac, it had fought the bank bill swap rate case, and that was the equivalent of LIBOR rigging in the Northern Hemisphere, where banks paid billions and billions of dollars in penalties for rigging the fundamental interest rate benchmarks. Now, in Australia, Westpac fought that, and it was partially cleared and it was partially held liable in court. And its penalty for that was $3.3 million. Now, it, it, that doesn't even qualify to a bank that's reporting a $6 billion, or in CBA, CBA's case, $10 billion a year profit. It's not even a parking fine. It's not even a library fine. So you had organizations that truly believed that they had the regulators under control and you could argue that they absolutely did and then what you have here though this is what blindsided them is you had an agency that was led by Paul Jevtovic who had been put in there with a with a clear mandate to transform the agency and that was driven by the 2015 mutual evaluation that the financial action task force did on australia where they found that austrac was a good agency on the intelligence side a great agency on the intelligence side but it wasn't doing enough on enforcement to keep the private sector focused on these issues so you ha now had this big change you had 35-year organised crime-fighting veteran in charge of this financial, regulatory and intelligence agency. And he was looking at what was going on and was horrified. And as the leader of that organisation, he took the very brave decision to go the enforcement path. Now, that shocked everyone in the sector. And what really shocked them was the scale and significance of Austrac's powers. So all of a sudden, you were looking at theoretical penalties in the hundreds of billions, even trillions of dollars in Westpac's case. So you suddenly had this organisation that was nothing like a financial regulator, but it had regulatory oversight over the banks, and it absolutely smashed them with that big stick. And that's been, I think, Jason, that's been the big driving change has been all of a sudden anti-money laundering is top of board and senior management list of priorities and it came from a very low base and that was the result of the courage and the bravery of Austrac. Very small agency with 300 staff and a 70 odd million dollar budget taking on these huge litigation cases and succeeding in them. Let's turn to the Westpac case now. Another situation where crimes were enabled by a financial institution in this case, there was a particularly abhorrent aspect with the payment for child sex exploitation offences being facilitated through a lack of effective oversight. He wrote in that case, Westpac was gearing up to strongly fight the claims, but they had to quickly compromise when the weight of evidence became too much. Yeah, and I think that again comes back to, from a purely legalistic point of view, this legislation has never been litigated in court because... What tends to happen is the weight of evidence is so enormous, the potential penalties are so huge that there tends to be a settlement prior to trial. 
And Westpac is, I wouldn't say notorious, but it's well known in the financial sector for being willing to take these cases on. So we talked earlier about the bank bill swap rate. Three of the other big four banks all settled that and, and paid a penalty and prevented going to court, whereas Westpac went the litigation path. So they were fully geared up and ready to go and to take this on and to try and find some holes in the legislation. And really it was when they discovered that the same failures, the same breakdowns in culture and technology and everything that had led to this massive multinational tax laundromat opening up inside the bank, it was those same vulnerabilities that led it to become a basically a bank of choice for child sex offenders who were purchasing online child sex abuse material from the Philippines. Now, that was just an absolute catastrophe for management because they, they had no idea about that. They just didn't know until it was brought to their attention as a result of running these financial intelligence filters or transaction monitoring filters. It was through that process when they started applying them that they discovered, oh, oh dear, we've got 11 really abhorrent customers. And then when they kept checking, there was another 200 or so customers that met the same profile. So what really happened at that point was banks have to make a pragmatic decision and the reputational fallout and harm of fighting that in court would have been so catastrophic that they chose that it was better to settle. But most importantly, from the federal government perspective and the Austrac perspective, it's not about settling and paying a fine. It's about saying, yep, okay, we stuffed up. We can see that there was real huge harm in terms of federal tax revenue losses. And one of the examples was the Philippine child sex abuse cases. And so they then realized that this was a massive failure that had real world consequences and they've now become a totally committed and incredibly valuable partner with Austrac through entities like the Fintel Alliance, where they have these public-private partnerships. So the big fine and the criminal cases and all the rest of it get the headlines. But the objective from an Austrac perspective really is all about gathering financial intelligence. And they have to also walk a fine line between permanently harming their relationship with these banks which are so valuable to them as partners and so you know I think they've done a really excellent job to be honest of walking that line of of using their big stick but then settling the cases and everyone now is focused on the future which is using these incredible tools to do very good work and support the policing community ultimately. You also wrote about some of the inadvertent results of crackdowns and how some innocent people have been hurt. Yeah, that it's a big problem. So you've sort of got when banks become excessively risk averse, which is an understandable response, they then have a whole bunch of unforeseen consequences. So the remittance sector is probably the most visible and most useful demonstration of that because what happens is you've got these transactions, which they are high risk, right? They're small amounts of money, but huge volume moving across borders. And the customers that are moving that money, it's very hard at that level to differentiate between someone who's doing something nefarious and someone who is working in Australia and sending their hard-earned money 
back home to support their family. So if we choose the Philippine corridor, for instance, because we've talked about how that can be used for the most woeful crimes imaginable, you've got there a diaspora in Australia of Filipino workers who come here and they're always sending money home to support their families. And so it's critical that those transactions move through the regulated remittance sector. And the remitters run these networks, but they're still using the railways and roads of the banking system to move those transactions. They just run them through banks and aggregate them. And so without the cooperation of the banks, they can't operate. And what you see is that if banks become too risk averse, which is what Westpac effectively did. Once they got busted, they just went, right, we're out of that sector. We're not playing with remittance providers anymore. And then what that tends to do is it it means that businesses that were actually working really hard to mitigate and report money laundering risks were forced into closure. And in the book, I tell the story of one gentleman whose case was really tragic who lost his business over that, even though he was a real believer in the anti-money laundering regime. And you've then got the additional problem from a criminal intelligence perspective where you're driving those money flows back underground where there's no visibility. And so that is, from Austrac's perspective and a policing perspective, that's the worst outcome to drive them back to Hawala and Hundi and these untraceable underground networks is disastrous. So, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a, it is a complex area. I think that's what makes it so fascinating. You can see that policy bodies are pushing levers and then they go too far and then the banks retaliate. And sometimes the banks, it's got to be said that sometimes the banks want to give a middle finger to law enforcement and uh, regulatory bodies after they suffer these big enforcement cases. So they will choke the flow of intelligence and they have little things that they can do, like they can preemptively close accounts where police might've asked them to monitor an account and they turn around and go, well, we're not taking that risk. We're going to close it. And so that's disastrous because it's effectively alerting customers to the fact that they're being looked at and driving them back underground. So it's a really it's a really delicate dance that goes on, but on the overwhelmingly positive side, Jason, there are so many good people working as you know on the policing side, but what's probably lesser known is on the private sector side. There are thousands of people in Australia that are just absolutely passionate about their work working in the private sector in anti-money laundering roles and they love working with police they love hearing that the really effective work that they've done on routing out intelligence and feeding it through Austrac has led to outcomes so there's this huge resource there that the policing and intelligence and criminal intelligence communities can tap to target major crimes terrorism sanctions these sorts of issues you mentioned the Fusion Centre intelligence sharing arrangement set up by Austrac under Paul Jeftovic's leadership. It's a model of operations which have been used extensively by police in other crime type areas. It was an act of genius really appointing Paul Jeftovic into that role because of his policing background and because of his work with a lot of those fusion centres. And he'd formed a view when he was working in the AFP that partnerships were going to be crucial to achieving anything, particularly in view of the transnational nature of this problem. So it had to be a partnership, and that would be a partnership between different government agencies, different countries, 
and critically the public and private sector, which was an area that I would argue had been underutilised up until that point. And so he took that model where, you know, the police are really good and counterterrorism teams are really good at developing these fusion centres and getting the best mileage out of them. And so he created that model in Australia. He didn't even have the laws available to him in effect to really make that model sing. But there was an attitude at Austrac at the time that the consequences of inaction were going to be so catastrophic that it was better to risk maybe a failure or a bad PR event or intelligence leakage or something like that. The risk had to be taken. And again, just with those enforcement cases that required bravery and courage and a, a determination just to get the job done, which really goes back to that policing AFP mindset. And so they built this fusion centre. It was the first of its kind in the world where you had private sector entities like bankers sworn in. They were background checked. They were sworn in as with the secrecy obligations that come with working in these sensitive environments. And they would sit there in a fusion centre together working on cases. And they came up with some really clever workarounds to protect privacy while also getting the data centralised into Austrac. And they just made it work. And, you know, they've had huge successes around things like the Panama Papers, multinational tax evasion, child exploitation material, which has been hugely effective, money mulling, a whole bunch of areas where this partnership model is just, it's not only blowing minds in Australia, it's being watched and emulated internationally, which is a huge, huge kudos to Austrac for doing that. Let's talk about the title of your book, The Lucky Laundry. It's a play on Donald Horne's famous phrase of Australia being the lucky country. Uh, why did you choose the title? Yeah, look, I mean, you've got to, you know, we're all passionate about this world and this partnership, particularly on me coming at it from the private sector side and wanting to help in my day-to-day -day job with Thomson Reuters, we're helping organisations to do a better job of delivering financial intelligence and also obviously protecting themselves from stuffing up and getting litigated. And then on the other side, you've got the law enforcement people that do amazing things with that intelligence once it's created and delivered. So, you know, that comes back to a belief in what Australia is and what we have here and what we have to protect. And our country is the envy of the world through a fluke of history, really. We've got this amazing system of common law that we inherited from the British. We've got low levels of corruption. We've got a really cohesive society with a small population, great education system. I mean, honestly, Jason, no one in Australia is driven into crime through circumstance. And that's a really important thing. Everyone in Australia has the opportunity to get an education, work hard, do something really phenomenal with their life and really make a positive contribution. That's not the case everywhere in the world. If you look at parts of Mexico, for instance, or the Middle East or Africa, there are people that are just driven into crime at, through pure survival. And Australia is the lucky country in that sense. You know, we're just so fortunate here. And I think my book goes into... It, I mean, when you're writing a non-fiction book, you've got to follow the, the stories and the information that comes to you. But I kept coming across these stories of 
first or second generation migrants that were doing amazing things like Paul Jevtovic from Serbian parents who fled communism came to Australia and they just inculcated into their kids this idea that you are so lucky to be here you have so much to protect don't let this country go down the gurgler on your watch that's your duty as a person who now is living in Australia having this really amazing life and that was all the way through the book. All of these people, the remitter that I talked about, he was a first-generation immigrant and he was so grateful to have brought his family from India to Australia. He wanted to give back and he wanted to protect it. And I think there's a danger that if you get down to the very human part of this story, and I've tried to tell the story through human stories, if you get back to the core of it, as we can become very complacent in this country about what we have, and about how fortunate we are. And I think that's one of the biggest dangers Australia faces is that people don't get out and travel enough and they don't see the rest of the world and they don't appreciate what we have here. And I thought that Paul Jevtovic, when he was at Austrac, did a really good job of harnessing that. So he would go out to events and to roundtable discussions and things like that, and he had a really clear message. He would say to Australians, that were present at these fora, he would say, I don't want to have 300 people working at Austrac helping to keep Australia safe and to fight serious and organised crime. I don't want to have 10,000 people in the law enforcement sector. I want 26 million Australians working and supporting this. And that was a message that really resonated. And because of the way that he opened up to the private sector, and invited them in to come and join, you know, join the fight, in effect. He, he just generated so much goodwill. And there, there was this huge uplift in the value and volume of intelligence, of final intel, financial intelligence that was fed through to Austrac as a result of that open and trusting approach and really appealing to the decency of Australians, but also the idea that we're the lucky country, but as Donald Horde said, that's a backhanded compliment. We are also potentially a very complacent country and that's what we always have to be fighting. A point well made. Talking about complacency, and you alluded to this earlier in the chat, you mentioned phase two legislation and implied we as a country are being way tardy in implementing it. Way tardy. Tardy would be generous. I mean, really, what we, what it, what it became, I mean, <laughs> mate, I was, I was following this for for 16 years as someone working in publishing and training and things like that around anti-money laundering for the private sector. And, you know, we we're all watching it. In 2006, there was bipartisan political support to move ahead with this second tranche. And then five years went, 10 years went. And then when 15 years had lapsed and we were running one of the best financial intelligence units on the planet here in Australia, we're pushing all of these boundaries. But our political masters were holding back on giving Austrac the, the suite of tools. I mean, the analogy I use is Austrac's going into a ring against a prize fighter, a Mike Tyson of financial crime, and the government has strapped one of its gloves behind its back. It, was, it, it cannot succeed without this full suite of powers. So that then, for me, covering this issue, it made me look a lot more deeper into, hang on a minute, what could possibly be the reason for this? Because we're an absolute world leader in financial intelligence, and yet when it comes to real estate, 
lawyers and accountants in particular, we are literally languishing at the bottom of the international league table. You know, we're down there with the likes of Haiti and Madagascar at the very bottom of recalcitrant nations. There's only five countries in the world that haven't moved on this, in, that are members of the Financial Action Task Force. And we are leading that group in terms of and when they do the reviews, we're the first in line for the next review. So how can Australia explain that to the world? And so it really becomes more about far more than just financial crime. This becomes a, when you look deeply enough into it, you start to say, wow, this is a real, you know, porthole into what's happening in Canberra in terms of corporate sectors being able to lobby influence and just stall this legislation that has major drives from the Greens, from Labor and the Liberal government, and yet it's outlasted seven different prime ministerships. It's the Lazarus of law reform, this stuff. It just, just keeps coming back. So, you know, I think it's a real, it's not just about money laundering. It's actually about a deeper insight into Australia and how we have to make sure that we continue our international reputation as a country that's all about rule of law and decency and transparency. And I think, you know, on the positive side, Jason, I think we're going to see traction on this in the next year or two. So we can be very, very positive about that. Can you tease that out a bit? What should happen and what areas does the legislation need to address? So what it would, it's actually super simple what it, what it aims to do. It just literally expands the list of designated services that make you covered by the AMLCTF Act, the Anti-Money Laundering and Counterterrorism Financing Act. So at the moment, it's based around designated services. So if you're providing banking, insurance, uh, you're a bullion dealer, you're a casino, then, or you're a pokies operator, you know, running pokey machines in a pub and club. You're all brought into the regime and you have to have an anti-money laundering program. You have to assess your risk. You have to train your staff and you have to report intelligence. You know, that's, that's the core of what's required. And it's fully scalable. So a small business has a very different set of obligations based on their risk than a large well-resourced bank or casino. So it's a very scalable regime. And at the small end, it might just involve, you know, having a having an assessment of your risk, having a spreadsheet that you keep, and having a person on your staff who's in charge of filing these reports if something suspicious happens. So what the second tranche of the legislation will do is it will just extend that to a whole new bunch of activities. And so at the moment, there's 14,000 or 15,000 reporting entities that are covered under the first tranche of the legislation. But what tranche two will do is it will expand that out to probably another 100,000 reporting entities. But the challenge there, Jason, is that they will B, there will be a lot of small businesses that are caught up. So, you know, a lot of small accounting firms, a lot of small real estate uh, operators, you know, small law firms in, in addition to the large players. And so that does impose some problems because it's, it's a compliance overhead. Businesses are already struggling. They're already swamped with red tape. So the, what they did in New Zealand was New Zealand was way behind Australia and then they got caught out in the Panama Papers and they're exposed as a basically a wash house for international dirty money, particularly through their atrocious foreign trust regime. So they reformed their foreign trusts. They ran ahead with the first 
phase, as they call it, of their regime. And then two years later, they were pushing ahead with their second phase, which is our tranche two laws. So they got the whole job done in about four years. And now they're miles ahead of us in terms of their regulatory regime. So it just shows how simple it is to do. And there's a whole bunch of industry sectors that are squealing and crying and saying the sky's going to fall. But, you know, look, it's just not the case. Every, every other comparable country has moved on this. Nathan, why did you write the book? What were you hoping to do and how's it gone? Oh, mate, I, I, for starters, I guess the reason that I wrote it was because there are just so many fascinating stories in this area. People love true crime and, and I find it absolutely fascinating. But no one in Australia had really written yet about the true crime when it comes to money laundering and the world of financial intelligence and this cat and rat game that's played between the people who are trying to find loopholes, trying to move money, trying to wash funds and clip the ticket and get their 4 or 5% on vast volumes of criminal money flows. And then at the same time, there's this chess game where you've got the people on the law enforcement government intelligence side who are trying to detect them deter them disrupt them and it's just such an interesting human story there's so many great yarns so i i did want to tell those stories because as as a writer it's just you, you you're compelled to share such great yarns but secondly i i thought it was really important to write this story in a way that was targeted for the common man because we do need to put pressure on the government to fix this stuff up and that will require Joe Average, John Citizen or Jane Citizen in the street understanding what the consequences are. And so in the book, I really let them know that if your politicians and your political leaders are failing to do their part of this, then your kids aren't going to be able to afford to buy a home in their own house in part because they are possibly going up at auction against a drug dealer or an organised crime gang. You cannot be guaranteed in Australia that that person bidding at auction against your children isn't a gangster because no one is required to look, no one is required to ask questions, no one's required to know. So that was, you know, that was a, another part of why I wrote it because I thought that we needed to share with the broader public what was happening here and tell that story in a way where I sugarcoat the pill by just wrapping it in these great crime stories and law enforcement stories. And then thirdly, mate, I just thought, you know, there's so many inspiring people working in this sector on the government law enforcement side and they're real Australian heroes, they're unsung heroes and we need role models in this day and age and I just wanted to share their stories because they inspire me and many of my colleagues in the private sector every day with what they do and it's good to, it's good to tell some of those stories. I'm glad you did. It's a great read and I really enjoyed it. It's current too with some really recent examples which is not easy to achieve in publishing. And you got to get through the lawyers as well, right? But, you know, I have this firm belief, Jason, that too often true crime books glorify scumbags. The, the stories about the gangsters and the criminals and the murderers and all that, that just, they're glorifying the wrong people. And so, you know, I wanted to write a book that kind of told about these amazing people on the other side. And we tell the stories of people in there that fell into the wrong side of the tracks for various reasons. 
and they're very human stories. And as a writer, it's not my job to judge, it's to understand. So, you know, I tell the story of people like Pete Huang, who came here as an orphan. Really, you could look at his story that opens the book as one of those cases of blowback from Western foreign policy. He's a Vietnamese orphan, and, and you can trace that back to the Vietnam War. And he fights his way across the poorest borders of Southeast Asia, gets himself a fake passport, comes into Australia as an Indonesian student, and just, he's a survivor. He's a smart guy, and he's prodigious with numbers, and he finds that he's really good at money laundering. And unfortunately, at 38 years old, he's shot in the face five times on the streets of Sydney after losing a bag of money that was seized by the AFP at Crown Casino and falling offside with his criminal handlers. So that's a, that's a tragic story as well. There's someone who kind of fell into that life. He didn't have family around him. And that's there, for the astute reader, that's there in the book as well. So I go back into the family histories of a couple of the key protagonists on the law enforcement and anti-money laundering side. And what I would find when I really got to know them and ask about their personal stories is that they always came from really phenomenal, tight, supportive families. And I just kind of formed this intuitive view when I was writing the book that, wow, that is so important. If you look at Pete Wong, he had no one. His only family in Australia was the organised crime gangs that ultimately murdered him. And then you've got people like Paul Jevtovic, like Neil Jeans, like Warren Lysart, all of these heroes, Sonia Marsik, the lawyer at the Australian government solicitor that just smashed these corporate titans with watertight legal cases. They came from these beautiful, supportive family environments and they felt this huge duty to do the right thing to repay the faith and opportunity that they'd been shown. And I think that's just such a... That that was sort of... When you're writing a book about technical things like money laundering, that was a thing that was really crucial to get across. It's not analytical. There's no empirical data showing that family has a big impact <laughs> that I'm aware of, but certainly anecdotally in all of the stories that I looked at and all of the, the heroes in my book... That was something that was consistent across their lives. Before we go, Nathan, is there anything else you wanted to mention? No, I, I just, I don't know, maybe I can ask you a, you a question. I mean, do you think, from the law enforcement side, do you think that these recent cases have increased the visibility of, say, Austrac's work and the use of financial intelligence? Because that's the other side that we don't see on the public side is one of the impacts of these big cases is that hopefully it educates the agencies that consume Austrac's intelligence about the power of it and the way that it can be used in cases. Do you think there's been a similar uplift in awareness on the law enforcement side? Yeah, I think law enforcement is like the general community. The awareness is increasing in some areas, especially those investigation teams that target serious organised crime. Each jurisdiction has its own legislation, of course, but all police forces are spending more time in money laundering investigations and seizing the proceeds of crime. It's often the most effective way to disrupt and dismantle criminal enterprises. It's fantastic, isn't it? And, you know, there's so much appetite on the private sector side to work with you guys. The the people, particularly in the major reporters, you know, the big organisations, they're doing such great work. And when they get 
when they see a media release come out about a case that's been busted, they can never come out publicly and say that that was their intelligence, clearly, for a bunch of reasons, including the tipping off laws under the AML Act, which is a criminal offence. So they've got to keep quiet about the good work that they do. and But at the same time, it's so... From their perspective, it's so encouraging to see this data and intelligence getting used and to see it coming back, maybe through a sanitised case study or typology. But there's a huge resource of people out there. Just because just because people work in the private sector doesn't mean that they don't have the same qualities that would have made a great policeman. And that's, that's something that I find with people that are gravitated towards these roles. They'll quite often say to me, oh, I studied law, but I would have loved to have been a police officer. And so, so they are such a huge resource for the public sector bodies and law enforcement community to tap into and encourage. And that's a, that's a really exciting time, I think. I think there's been a big shift maybe in the last 10 years about the fact that this challenge is so great and it's so nefarious and it's so mercurial and adaptive that the only way that we're going to win is by harnessing every resource we have available to us as, as Australians. Yeah, when we saw your book, it became a priority for us to talk to you. It's a way to help inform the community about what money laundering is and the ways it can be tackled because it really does impact on the whole community. Oh, look, thanks thanks for that and thanks for picking that up because, you know, that's in all of my public commentary, I'm really careful never to go that path of bashing the corporates that get caught out because it is really important. It's not about that. It's they, they do a whole bunch of really good work. They screw up from time to time, but they are the greatest asset that's out there. The big banks, for instance, they have the best intelligence. They have the biggest pools of data, and that's such a valuable resource. And, you know, most of the people in those organisations want to be part of the journey and they want to do the right thing. And it's um, it, we're, we're living in an exciting time in that sense because... The game has just lifted up now. And because of Ostrak and Paul Jevtevic and all the other people and Nicole Rose, because of their bravery in the cases that they took on, even though it was you know challenging in terms of their intelligence mandate, they had an internal conflict between their regulatory mandate and their intelligence mandate. But they knew they had to do it and they did it. And then now they're entering this phase where they've got these really committed partners. But most importantly, now, when an anti-money laundering practitioner goes to the board and says, we need investment, guess what? They get it. And that's the big thing that's changed. Absolutely fantastic. It's only good for the country. It's great for the country. You guys are doing this amazing work and um, I think most Australians want to support you in that where they can. So a huge, a huge thanks to to you and the readers of your journal, Jason, for the work that you guys do. Oh, thank you very much, Nathan, and congratulations for the book. Maybe sometime in the future you'll write a sequel and it'll be a story with a lot of good news in it. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, for sure. There's always going to be more stories, for better or worse. Police are never going to be out of work and nor are financial crime writers. So for better or worse, we've got still got a lot to do. <laughs> Thanks very much for your time again, Nathan. Take care. Thank you so much. Cheers, Jason. Great to chat with you. That was Nathan Lynch, author of The Lucky Country, How the Aussie Economy Got Hooked on the World's Dirtiest Cash. It's printed by HarperCollins Publishers and is currently in bookshops. The book is an intriguing look into the world of dirty money in 21st century Australia. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're not a subscriber to the Australian Police Journal, check out our website at www.apjl.com.au. 
There you'll find some publicly accessible articles and information about the journal. Subscribers to the journal are also able to use the website to access the current issue and over 260 back copies. Why not check the site out? Until next time, take care.